Chapter Four of the Nigger of the Narcissus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Nigger of the Narcissus by Joseph Conrad. Chapter Four, Part One. On men reprieved by its disdainful mercy, the immortal sea confers in its justice the full privilege of desired unrest. Through the perfect wisdom of its grace, they are not permitted to meditate at ease upon the complicated and accurate savour of existence. They must without pause justify their life to the eternal pity that commands toil to be hard and unceasing, from sunrise to sunset, from sunset to sunrise, till the weary succession of nights and days tainted by the obstinate clamour of sages, demanding bliss and an empty heaven is redeemed at last by the vast silence of pain and labour by the dumb fear and the dumb courage of men obscure forgetful and enduring the master and mr baker coming face to face stared for a moment with the intense and amazed looks of men meeting unexpectedly after years of trouble their voices were gone and they whispered desperately at one another anyone missing asked captain alliston no all there anyone hurt only the second mate i will look after him directly we're lucky very articulated mr baker faintly he gripped the rail and rolled bloodshot eyes the little gray man made an effort to raise his voice above a dull mutter and fixed his chief mate with a cold gaze piercing like a dart get sail on the ship he said speaking authoritatively and with an inflexible snap of his thin lips get sail on her as soon as you can this is a fair wind at once sir don't give the men time to feel themselves they will get done up and stiff and we will never we must get her along now he reeled to a long heavy roll the rail dipped into the glancing hissing water he caught his shroud, swung helplessly against the mate. Now we have a fair wind at last. Make sail. His head rolled from shoulder to shoulder. His eyelids began to beat rapidly. And the pumps. Pumps, Mr. Baker. He peered as though the face within a foot of his eyes had been a half mile off. Keep the men on the move to... To get her along, he mumbled in a drowsy tone like a man going off into a doze. He pulled himself together suddenly. Mustn't stand. Won't do, he said with a painful attempt at a smile. He let go his hold, and, propelled by the dip of the ship, ran aft unwillingly with small steps, till he brought up against the binnacle stand. Hanging on there, he looked up in an aimless manner at Singleton, who, unheeding him, watched anxiously the end of the jib-boom. "'Steeringer works all right?' he asked. There was a noise in the old seaman's throat, as though the words had been rattling together before they could come out. "'Steers like a little boat,' he said at last, with hoarse tenderness, without giving the master as much as half a glance. Then, watchfully, spun the wheel down, steadied, flung it back again. Captain Alliston tore himself away from the delight of leaning against the binnacle, and began to walk the poop, swaying and reeling to preserve his balance. The pump-rods, clanking, stamped in short jumps while the fly-wheels turned smoothly, 
with great speed at the foot of the mainmast flinging back and forth with a regular impetuosity two limp clusters of men clinging to the handles they abandoned themselves swaying from the hip with twitching faces and stony eyes the carpenter sounding from time to time exclaimed mechanically shake her up keep her going mr baker could not speak but found his voice to shout and under the goad of his objurgations men looked to the lashings dragged out new sails and thinking themselves unable to move carried heavy blocks aloft overhauled the gear they went up the rigging with faltering and desperate efforts their heads swam as they shifted their hold stepped blindly on the yards like men in the dark or trusted themselves to the first rope at hand with the negligence of exhausted strength the narrow escapes from falls did not disturb the languid beat of their hearts the roar of the seas seething far below sounded continuous and faint like an indistinct noise from another world the wind filled their eyes with tears and with heavy gusts tried to push them off from where they swayed in insecure positions with streaming faces and blowing hair they flew up and down between sky and water bestriding the ends of yard-arms crouching on foot-ropes embracing lifts to have their hands free or standing up against chain-ties their thoughts floated vaguely between the desire of rest and the desire of life while their stiffened fingers cast off head earrings fumbled for knives or held with tenacious grip against the violent shocks of beating canvas they glared savagely at one another made frantic signs with one hand while they held their life in the other looked down on the narrow strip of flooded deck shouted along to leeward light two haul out make fast their lips moved their eyes started furious and eager with the desire to be understood but the wind tossed their words unheard upon the disturbed sea in an unendurable and unending strain they worked like men driven by a merciless dream to toil in an atmosphere of ice or flame they burnt and shivered in turns their eyeballs smarted as if in the smoke of a conflagration their heads were ready to burst with every shout hard fingers seemed to grip their throats at every roll they thought now i must let go it will shake us all off and thrown about aloft they cried wildly look out there catch the end reeve clear turn this block they nodded desperately shook infuriated faces no no from down up they seemed to hate one another with a deadly hate the longing to be done with it all gnawed their breasts and the wish to do things well was a burning pain they cursed their fate condemned their lives and wasted their breath in deadly imprecations upon one another the sailmaker with his bald head bared worked feverishly forgetting his intimacy with so many admirals the boatswain climbing up with marlin spikes and bunches of spun yarn roving or kneeling on the yard and ready to take a turn with the midship stop had acute and fleeting visions of his old woman and the youngsters in a moorland village mr baker feeling very weak tottered here and there grunting and inflexible like a man of iron he waylaid those who coming from aloft stood gasping for breath 
he ordered encouraged scolded now then to the top mainsail now tally on to that gant line don't stand about there is there no rest for us muttered voices he spun round fiercely with a sinking heart no no rest till the work is done work till you drop that's what you're here for a bowed seaman at his elbow gave a short laugh do or die he croaked bitterly then spat into his broad palms swung up his long arms and grasping the rope high above his head sent out a mournful wailing cry for a pole altogether a sea boarded the quarter-deck and sent the whole lot sprawling to leeward caps handspikes floated clenched hands kicking legs with here and there a spluttering face struck out of the white hiss of foaming water mr baker knocked down with a rest screamed don't let go that rope hold on to it hold and sorely bruised by the brutal fling they held on to it as though it had been the fortune of their life the ship ran rolling heavily and the topping crests glanced past port and starboard flashing their white heads pumps were freed braces were rove the three topsails and foresail were set she spurted faster over the water outpacing the swift rush of waves the menacing thunder of distant seas rose behind her filled the air with the tremendous vibrations of its voice and devastated battered and wounded she drove foaming to the northward as though inspired by the courage of a high endeavour the forecastle was a place of damp desolation they looked at their dwelling with dismay it was slimy dripping it hummed hollow with the wind and was strewn with shapeless wreckage like a half-tide cavern in a rocky and exposed coast many had lost all they had in the world but most of the starboard watch had preserved their chests thin streams of water trickled out of them however the beds were soaked the blankets spread out and saved by some nail squashed underfoot they dragged wet rags from evil-smelling corners and wringing the water out recognized their property some smiled stiffly others looked round blank and mute there were cries of joy over old waistcoats and groans of sorrow over shapeless things found among the splinters of smashed bedboards one lamp was discovered jammed under the bowsprit charlie whimpered a little noel stumped here and there sniffing examining dark places for salvage he poured dirty water out of a boot and was concerned to find the owner those who overwhelmed by their losses sat on the forepeak hatch remained elbows on knees and with a fist against each cheek disdained to look up he pushed it under their noses here's a good boot yours they snarled no get out one snapped at him take it to hell out of this he seemed surprised why it's a good boot but remembering suddenly that he had lost every stitch of his clothing he dropped his find and began to swear in the dim light cursing voices clashed a man came in and dropping his arm stood still repeating from the doorstep here's a bloomin old go here's a bloomin old go a few rooted anxiously in flooded chests for tobacco they breathed hard clamoured with heads down look at that jack 
Here, Sam, here's my shore-going rig spoilt forever. One blasphemed tearfully, holding out a pair of dripping trousers. No one looked at him. The cat came out from somewhere. He had an ovation. They'd snatched him from hand to hand, caressed him in a murmur of pet names. They wondered where he had weathered it out, disputed about it. A squabbling argument began. Two men brought in a bucket of fresh water and all crowded round it, but Tom, lean and mewing, came up with every hair astir and had the first drink. A couple of hands went aft for oil and biscuits. Then, in the yellow light and in the intervals of mopping the deck, they crunched hard bread, arranging to worry through somehow. Men chummed as to beds. Turns were settled for wearing boots and having the use of oilskin coats. They called one another old man and sunny in cheery voices. Friendly slaps resounded. Jokes were shouted. One or two stretched on the wet deck, slept with heads pillowed on their bent arms, and several, sitting on the hatch, smoked. Their weary faces appeared through a thin blue haze, pacified and with sparkling eyes. The boatswain put his head through the door. "'Relieve the wheel, one of you,' he shouted inside. "'It's six. "'Blammy if that old singleton hasn't been there more'n thirty hours. "'You are a fine lot.' He slammed the door again. Mates watch on deck, said someone. Hey, Duncan, it's your relief, shouted three or four together. He had crawled into an empty bunk and on wet planks lay still. Duncan, your wheel. He made no sound. Duncan's dead, guffawed someone. Sell his bloomin' clothes, shouted another. Duncan, if ye don't go to the bloomin' wheel, they will sell your clothes. Do ye hear? cheered a third. He groaned from his dark hole. He complained about pains in all his bones. He whimpered pitifully. He won't go, exclaimed a contemptuous voice. Your turn, Davis. The young seaman rose painfully, squaring his shoulders. Duncan stuck his head out, and it appeared in the yellow light, fragile and ghastly. I will give yer a pound of tobacco, he whined in a conciliating voice, so soon as I draw it from aft. I will say out me. Davis swung his arm backhanded, and the head vanished. I'll go, he said, but you will pay for it. He walked unsteady but resolute to the door. So I will, yelped Duncan, popping out behind him. So I will, say out me. A pound, three bob they charge. Davis flung the door open. You will pay my price in fine weather, he shouted over his shoulder. One of the men unbuttoned his wet coat rapidly, threw it at his head. Here, Taffy, take that, you thief. Thank you, he cried from the darkness above the swish of rolling water. He could be heard splashing. A sea came on board with a thump. He's got his bath already, remarked a grim shellback. Aye, aye, grunted others. Then, after a long silence, Wamibo made strange noises. "'Hello, what's up with you?' said someone grumpily. "'He says he would have gone for Davy,' explained Archie, who was the Finn's interpreter generally. "'I believe him,' cried voices. "'Never mind, Dutchy. You'll do, muddlehead. Your turn will come soon enough. You don't know when you're well off.' They ceased, and all together turned their faces to the door. 
Singleton stepped in, advanced two paces, and stood swaying slightly. The sea hissed, flowed roaring past the bows, and the forecastle trembled, full of deep murmurs. The lamp flared, swinging like a pendulum. He looked with a dreamy and puzzled stare, as though he could not distinguish the still men from their restless shadows. There were awestruck exclamations. Hello, hello. How does it look outside now, Singleton? Those who sat on the hatch lifted their eyes in silence, and the next oldest seaman in the ship, those two understood one another, though they hardly exchanged three words in a day, gazed up at his friend attentively for a moment, then taking a short clay pipe out of his mouth, offered it without a word. Singleton put out his arm toward it, missed, staggered, and suddenly fell forward, crashing down, stiff and headlong, like an uprooted tree. There was a swift rush. Men pushed, crying, He's done! Turn him over! Stand clear there! Under a crowd of startled faces bending over him, he lay on his back, staring upward in a continuous and intolerable manner. In the breathless silence of a general consternation, he said in a grating murmur, I am all right, and clutched with his hands. They helped him up. He mumbled despondently, I am getting old, old. Not you, cried Belfast, with ready tact. Supported on all sides, he hung his head. Are you better, they asked. He glared at them from under his eyebrows with large black eyes, spreading over his chest the bushy whiteness of a beard long and thick. Old, old he repeated sternly. Helped along, he reached his bunk. There was in it a slimy soft heap of something that smelled, as does at dead low water a muddy foreshore. It was his soaked straw bed. With a convulsive effort he pitched himself on to it, and in the darkness of the narrow place could be heard growling angrily, like an irritated and savage animal uneasy in its den. Bit of breeze, small thing, can't stand up. Old. He slept at last, high-booted, sou'wester on head, and his oilskin clothes rustled when, with a deep-sighing groan, he turned over. Men conversed about him in quiet, concerned whispers. This will break him up, strong as a horse. Aye, but he ain't what he used to be. In sad murmurs they gave him up. Yet at midnight he turned out to duty as if nothing had been the matter, and answered to his name with a mournful, Here! He brooded alone more than ever, in an impenetrable silence and with a saddened face. For many years he had heard himself called Old Singleton, and had serenely accepted the qualification, taking it as a tribute of respect due to a man who through half a century had measured his strength against the favors and the rages of the sea. He had never given a thought to his mortal self. He lived unscathed, as though he had been indestructible, surrendering to all the temptations, weathering many gales. He had panted in sunshine, shivered in the cold, suffered hunger, thirst, debauch, passed through many trials, known all the furies. Old. It seemed to him he was broken at last, and like a man bound treacherously while he sleeps, 
he woke up fettered by the long chain of disregarded years he had to take up at once the burden of all his existence and found it almost too heavy for his strength old he moved his arms shook his head felt his limbs getting old and then he looked upon the immortal sea with the awakened and groping perception of its heartless might he saw it unchanged black and foaming under the eternal scrutiny of the stars he heard its impatient voice calling for him out of a pitiless vastness full of unrest of turmoil and of terror he looked afar upon it he saw an immensity tormented and blind moaning and furious that claimed all the days of his tenacious life and when life was over would claim the worn-out body of its slave that was the last of the breeze it veered quickly changed to a black southeaster and blew itself out giving the ship a famous shove to the northward into the joyous sunshine of the trade rapid and white she ran homewards in a straight path under a blue sky and upon the plain of a blue sea she carried singleton's completed wisdom donkin's delicate susceptibilities and the conceited folly of us all the hours of ineffective turmoil were forgotten the fear and anguish of those dark moments were never mentioned in the glowing peace of fine days yet from that time our life seemed to start afresh as though we had died and been resuscitated all the first part of the voyage the indian ocean on the other side of the cape all that was lost in a haze like an ineradicable suspicion of some previous existence it had ended then there were blank hours a livid blur and again we lived singleton was possessed of sinister truth mr crichton of a damaged leg the cook of fame and shamefully abused the opportunities of his distinction duncan had an added grievance he went about repeating with insistence he said he would brain me did your ear they are gone to murder us now for the least little thing we began at last to think it was rather awful and we were conceited we boasted of our pluck of our capacity for work of our energy we remembered honourable episodes our devotion our indomitable perseverance and were proud of them as though they had been the outcome of our unaided impulses we remembered our danger our toil and conveniently forgot our horrible scare we decried our officers who had done nothing and listened to the fascinating donkin his care for our rights his disinterested concern for our dignity were not discouraged by the invariable costumely of our words by the disdain of our looks our contempt for him was unbounded and we could not but listen with interest to that consummate artist he told us we were good men a bloomin' condemned lot of good men who thanked us who took any notice of our wrongs didn't we lead a dog's life for two pounds ten a month did we think that miserable pay enough to compensate us for the risk to our lives and for the loss of our clothes we've lost every rag he cried he made us forget that he at any rate had lost nothing of his own the younger men listened thinking this ere donkin's a long-headed chap though no kind of man anyhow the scandinavians were frightened at his audacities 
Wamibo did not understand, and the older seamen thoughtfully nodded their heads, making the thin gold earrings glitter in the fleshy lobes of hairy ears. Severe, sunburnt faces were propped meditatively on tattooed forearms. Veined brown fists held in their knotted grip the dirty white clay of smouldering pipes. They listened, impenetrable, broad-backed, with bent shoulders and in grim silence. He talked with ardor, despised and irrefutable. His picturesque and filthy loquacity flowed like a troubled stream from a poisoned source. His beady little eyes danced, glancing right and left, ever on the watch for the approach of an officer. Sometimes Mr. Baker going forward to take a look at the head-sheets would roll with his uncouth gait through the sudden stillness of the men, or Mr. Crichton limped along, smooth-faced, useful, and more stern than ever, piercing our short silence with the keen glance of his clear eyes. Behind his back Duncan would begin again darting stealthy, sidelong looks. Here's one of them. Some of you as made him fast that day. Much thanks ye got for it. Ain't he a-drivin' you wuss'n ever? Let him slip overboard. Why not? It would have been less trouble. Why not? He approached confidently, backed away with great effect. He whispered, he screamed, waved his miserable arms no thicker than pipe-stems, stretched his lean neck, spluttered, squinted. In the pauses of his impassioned orations, the wind sighed quietly aloft, the calm sea, unheeded, murmured in a warning whisper along the ship's side. We abominated the creature and could not deny the luminous truth of his contentions. It was also obvious. We were indubitably good men, our deserts were great, and our pay small. Through our exertions we had saved the ship, and the skipper would get the credit of it. What had he done, we wanted to know. Duncan asked, What he could do without us? And we could not answer. We were oppressed by the injustice of the world, surprised to perceive how long we had lived under its burden without realizing our unfortunate state, annoyed by the uneasy suspicion of our undiscerning stupidity. Duncan assured us it was all our good-heartedness, but we would not be consoled by such shallow sophistry. We were men enough to courageously admit to ourselves our intellectual shortcomings, though from that time we refrained from kicking him, tweaking his nose, or from accidentally knocking him about, which last, after we had weathered the cape, had been rather a popular amusement. Davis ceased to talk at him provokingly about black eyes and flattened noses. Charlie, much subdued since the gale, did not jeer at him. Knowles deferentially, and with a crafty air, propounded questions such as, Could we all have the same grub as the mates? Could we all stop ashore till we got it? What would be the next thing to try for if we got that? He answered readily with contemptuous certitude. He strutted with assurance and clothes that were much too big for him, as though he had tried to disguise himself. These were Jimmy's clothes, mostly, though he would accept anything from anybody, but nobody, except Jimmy, had anything to spare. His devotion to Jimmy was unbounded. He was forever dodging in the little cabin, ministering to Jimmy's wants, 
humoring his whims, submitting to his exacting peevishness, often laughing with him. Nothing could keep him away from the pious work of visiting the sick, especially when there was some heavy hauling to be done on deck. Mr. Baker had on two occasions jerked him out from there by the scruff of the neck to our inexpressible scandal. Was a sick chap to be left without attendance? Were we to be ill-used for attending a shipmate? What? growled Mr. Baker, turning menacingly at the mutter, and the whole half-circle like one man stepped back a pace. Set the topmast stun sail. Away aloft, Duncan. Overhaul the gear, ordered the mate inflexibly. Fetch the sail along. Bend the downhaul clear. Bear a hand. Then, with sail set, he would go slowly aft and stand looking at the compass for a long time, careworn, pensive, and breathing hard as if stifled by the taint of unaccountable ill-will that pervaded the ship. What's up amongst them, he thought. Can't make out this hanging back and growling. A good crowd, too, as they go nowadays. On deck the men exchanged bitter words, suggested by a silly exasperation against something unjust and irremediable that would not be denied, and would whisper into their ears long after Duncan had ceased speaking. Our little world went on its curved and unswerving path, carrying a discontented and aspiring population. They found comfort of a gloomy kind in an interminable and conscientious analysis of their unappreciated worth, and inspired by Duncan's hopeful doctrines they dreamed enthusiastically of the time when every lonely ship would travel over a serene sea, manned by a wealthy and well-fed crew of satisfied skippers. It looked as if it would be a long passage. The southeast trades, light and unsteady, were left behind, and then, on the equator and under a low gray sky, the ship, in close heat, floated upon a smooth sea that resembled a sheet of ground glass. Thunder squalls hung on the horizon, circled round the ship, far off and growling angrily, like a troop of wild beasts afraid to charge home. The invisible sun, sweeping above the upright masts, made on the clouds a blurred stain of rayless light, and a similar patch of faded radiance kept pace with it from east to west over the unglittering level of the waters. At night, through the impenetrable darkness of earth and heaven, broad sheets of flame waved noiselessly, and for half a second the becalmed craft stood out with its masts and rigging, with every sail and every rope distinct and black in the center of a fiery outburst, like a charred ship enclosed in a globe of fire. And, again, for long hours she remained lost in a vast universe of night and silence, where gentle sighs wandering here and there like forlorn souls made the still sails flutter as in sudden fear, and the ripple of a beshrouded ocean whisper its compassion afar, in a voice mournful, immense, and faint. End of chapter 4, part 1